Today's copyright-expired song is The Lady in Ermine by Cyrus Wood and Al Goodman. Al Goodman, second artist in a row, with Irving Berlin being the first, who was an American Jew who fled Eastern Europe. Al Goodman was born in Odessa. His family left Odessa when he was a child, fled to Baltimore. Ooh, boy, out of the frying pan into the fryer. That's not true. I've been to Baltimore. It's lovely. Lovely's going too far. It's fine. But they fled Odessa because of a pogrom, and say what you will about the United States, historically we've been pretty light on pogroms. That's a feather in our cap. Clearly, a lot of Eastern European Jews at the time knew the United States was the place to go to. I wonder, there should have been a sign on the Statue of Liberty, like, pogrom free! Because capital P pogrom's not really a thing that we do. I mean, sure, anti-Semitism back then, yeah, I mean, (laughs) you know, your invitation to the country club will be sadly lost in the mail. That's not ideal, but a pogrom is unlikely. You know, I haven't talked much about immigration on this podcast, partly because I know the election season is coming up, so it's going to come up, so I'm kind of keeping my powder dry, but I do like immigration very much. I think it's an excellent idea, and I think one of the reasons that the United States has been so successful is that we get to draw all the brightest and the hardest working people from around the world, and therefore we get to have all the good stuff, like, for example, the song The Lady in Ermine by Al Goodman, which as I listen to it is kind of crappy, but it was a hit at the time! It was a hit at the time, and people liked it, (laughs) so (laughs) welcome to America, Al Goodman, we're glad to have you. Hello, I'm Jeff Maurer. You are, for some reason, listening to the I Might Be Wrong podcast, which is the podcast where I say with my mouth stuff that I had previously typed with my fingers and that can be found at imightbewrong.substack.com. It is presently free, though you can also choose to pay me with American money. You can quote-unquote pay me by sharing the articles, or you can pay me by leaving a review of this podcast, which is much appreciated. There's sort of an Uber-type thing where podcasters rely on reviews, so... I include a part of my podcast where I ask you to review me, and then the review system kind of becomes a reflection of how successful I am at begging you to review. It's maybe not a good system, but it is the system we have. (laughs) So a positive review is much appreciated if you feel so inclined. Today's episode is called Let's Overreact to the French Election. I wanted to write this one because the French election was interesting. I've always found France kind of interesting. I developed an interest in the French Revolution because it's such a fascinating tale of idealism gone very wrong. And French politics has always had a a lot of characters and some rather extreme polls, and that continues to this day. So I wanted to write about it. It's called Let's Overreact to the French Election, subheading Time to Treat a Single Data Point Like a Global Trend. To quote Orson Welles, the French... That's Orson Welles drunk in a wine commercial in the 70s. Let me play a quick clip of that. Ah, the French. Well said, Orson. The French think that they are the center of the universe. What an arrogant bunch of fucks. Clearly, my country, the United States, is at the center of the universe. I mean, that's just obvious. All things that happen in the world from... Turmoil in Myanmar to the migratory patterns of humpback whales only matter in as much as they affect Americans, especially me, 
Me, Jeff Maurer. That's, at the end of the day, the only reason politics matter at all. So, let's ask ourselves, what can we learn from France's election that's relevant to the only country that matters? This one. (laughs) This is not a new question. When Emmanuel Macron, and I'm going to struggle with these French names... I took two years of French in college, so I'm gonna. I've got a chance at like putting the right amount of zhuzh on them. But I, if I put too much zhuzh, then I'm just a douchebag. Anyway, Emmanuel Macron, that's too much, was elected in 2017, and many saw it as a result that stemmed the tide of populism. If you remember the articles that were written back then, Trump and Brexit had won less than a year before, so a lot of people were wondering if we were experiencing a populist surge that would bring Marine Le Pen, who is a French far-right populist, to power. Of course, neither Trump nor Brexit, the only two data points in the populist surge, asterisk, except for arguably Duterte in the Philippines, but the Philippines is on the other side of the globe, and Bolsonaro in Brazil, who came after 2017, and of course there's Erdogan in Turkey and Orban in Hungary, who were elected long ago and kind of became authoritarian populists with time. Anyway, The main two data points in the populist surge, the two things that people were really writing about a lot at the time, were Trump and Brexit. And I do want to point out that neither one of those things would have happened if about 1 million voters out of 162 million who cast ballots had cast their ballots a different way. That is a margin so thin that if it had gone the other way, we would have had a ton of populism is dead articles. Those would have been everywhere if only... (laughs) David Cameron had not lost a debate to a bus, which he sort of did, or if Hillary Clinton had done something like, for example, had a slogan more inspiring than, I am a woman, because her slogan was, I'm with her, I used to be a speechwriter, that annoyed me to no end, that is not a message, that is just, I am a woman, but we are not going to relive that whole debacle. Actually, I am going to relive that whole debacle, but I'm going to go relive it. On my own, I am not going to relive it here right now on the podcast. So, back to France, so that we can tie it into America later. French presidential elections occur in stages. Stage one, hors d'oeuvres. Stage two, soup, often chilled. Stage three, Mario Kart-esque chaotic first round of voting in which umpteen candidates compete to make it into a runoff between the top two. Stage four, salad. Stage five, sex scandal that would ruin an entire party in the United States, but that moves the needle about two percentage points in France. Stage six, runoff between the top two candidates in which two-thirds of voters make a big, stinking show about how they don't like either candidate. You always have people voting with clothespins on their nose. Oh, look what a statement I'm making. My person didn't get to the runoff. And then stage seven, a dessert, so calorie-dense, that it should be registered as a weapon. Of course, the only serious ones there are the two rounds of voting where they vote to get to the runoff and then the runoff. The first round happened last week. The second round is coming up this weekend. So, how did the first round go? It went like this, and in the interest of fairness, I am trying to be equally insulting to all candidates. So, the thinks-his-shit-doesn't-stink technocrat, that would be Macron, he won with 27.8%. The embarrassing exurban mom after three glasses of wine, that would be Marine Le Pen. She got second place, 
23.1%. So those are the two who will go into the runoff this coming weekend, Macron and Le Pen. But there were a few other candidates. You had a typical leftist geezer. That would be Jean-Luc Mélenchon. He got 22%, missed out by one percentage point. The far-right freak show, Eric Zemmour, got 7.1%. He was fourth. French Jeb Bush, that would be Valérie Pécresse. They are similar in that they are boring as white bread dipped in water. She did not do well. She got 4.8%. And then, of course, you had a grab bag of clowns who got... Well, you know, whatever was left over. I think it was like 15% between the 500 of them. So Macron and Le Pen will face off in the final vote. Macron, the center, center left, depending on who you ask. Technocrat, Le Pen, the far right, according to everyone, populist. They will face off in the final vote. This is basically what people thought was going to happen, though Le Pen did do better than people thought she might do a couple months ago. This is the same matchup that happened in 2017. In 2017, Macron beat Le Pen 2-1 in the second round. He got two-thirds of the vote, and he is strongly favored to win again, albeit by a slimmer margin this time. So, what is this? (laughs) This result. What is this? Is it a validation of Macron-style technocratic liberalism? Is it... Proof that technocratic liberalism can only inch forward at a maddeningly slow pace when the opposition is divided? Is it a setback for Putin? Is it a boost for Putin? Honestly, if I was a news editor, this is the type of Rorschach test story that would make me think, look, what narrative is going to get the most clicks here? And then once I answered that question, I would just publish that. So in the absence of no single obvious lesson. Here are a couple random observations that I had. Observation number one, for the 174th year in a row, the socialist revolution failed to arrive. Look at the dynamic here. Emmanuel Macron ceded an amazing amount of ground to the left. He basically united the no doubt about it leftist French left 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 by being pretty damn close to the center. These days, the left part of the center-left label that's often attached to Macron is about as active as the word singer when Russell Crowe is described as an actor-singer. It is the less active word in that combo. The only viable candidate to Macron's left was Jean-Luc Mélenchon. The other three of the top four candidates who finished behind Macron were to Macron's right. So, Picture that on a spectrum. Macron kind of in the center, maybe center-left. Again, it depends on who you ask. Three candidates to his right, only one to his left. So the right vote kind of divided. The left vote not really divided at all. And yet, Melanchon did not make the runoff. This despite of the Yellow Vests movement that had people writing Macron's political obituary in 2018. You probably remember that. That was kind of a leftist, populist, whatever. It became kind of a rightist, populist. It got awfully damn blurry. But started as a leftist movement, Occupy Wall Street kind of area sort of thing, but generally associated with the left. Those protests, which got violent sometimes, did not spark a broader political movement to take down Macron, and Melanchon ended up soft-peddling his appeals to the Yellow Vests in order to avoid scaring away centrists. And Melanchon lost... And the second round in France will now be a centrist, Macron, against a right-winger, Le Pen. But don't give up on the socialist revolution. It'll probably happen next year. 
It's like waiting for the Great Pumpkin if you're a socialist. Just <laughs> every year you think it's going to show up, and it never does. Second observation. Macron's economic policies were neither validated nor repudiated. So some people insist that Macron is the candidate of the elite. And other people think he's maybe kind of a socialist. The Economist called him a socialist in a very tongue-in-cheek way. They were pointing out that he does spend some money sometimes. So maybe he's of the Davos set, maybe he's a socialist, or actually maybe he represents kind of a new brand of forward-thinking left-wing capitalism, although isn't that kind of from 25 years ago, so that's not really forward-thinking. I don't know, he's kind of a center-left, rightish, Keynesian, big-government capitalist, lefty, anti-unionist, reformist maintainer of the status quo. That's probably the best way to describe him. The point I'm making is characterizations of Macron are all over the map. I do think that Macron's economic thinking comes into focus a bit when you put it in the context of the French status quo. France, not a lot of people know this, has the highest government spending rate in the OECD. A whopping 61.6% of French GDP is government spending. Aye, aye, aye. 61.6. We're in the 40s here in the U.S., and we're kind of in the middle, middle lower of the pack. In 2019, France ranked dead last in the Tax Foundation's International Tax Competitiveness Index. The French retirement age is 62, ooh la la, one of the lowest in the industrialized world. They get beat by, like, Greece, which is what you would guess. Firing a French worker, of course, is no day at the beach. It is a lot like buying toilet paper at the Dollar Tree, guaranteed to be a gigantic mess and something that only a masochist does twice. In that context, given that reality, the fact that Macron has or has tried to cut taxes, reform labor laws, raise the retirement age, all of that makes him look less like a right-winger and more like a guy trying to bring his country in line with international norms. And trying to prune back the French welfare state has not been Macron's only move. He also spent quite big to keep the economy running during COVID, which did help produce France's biggest economic boom in 52 years. That's a nice thing to run on. He has put big money towards things like beefed-up public benefits, retirement income for low-income farmers, free school breakfast in poor areas. French 18-year-olds <laughs> get 300 euros to spend on culture, which has got to be the most French thing I've ever heard in my life. It does seem that Emmanuel Macron wants a high-functioning capitalist economy that can be used to redistribute wealth. That, if you know this podcast, is the type of corporate neoliberal sellout stuff that I love. But Macron is difficult to put into a box. And he did win in the first round, but he didn't blow everyone out. People who declared him a dead man walking after the Yellow Vest protest in 2018, those people were premature, but it does not seem that he's found some secret trick to making third-way capitalism popular. The whole thing remains a muddle. One thing does seem clear, though. Connecting with the working class is as much about affect as it is about policy. The more I read about this election, the more it became obvious to me that Macron has what I will call a serious fancy lad problem. 
He is just too polished. His background as a banker doesn't help. Macron does actually have some credentials in terms of doing good things for the poor. He did write a book about the needs of the working class. But then the closest he's ever come to being complimented for his common touch is when The Economist praised his, quote, less haughty tone. That's about the best he can do. And of course, in a twist that is quite Trumpian, I would say his quote-unquote populist challenger, Marine Le Pen, grew up in an atmosphere so unbelievably privileged, there should probably be a succession character based on her. And look, I know there are limits to how much a candidate can manufacture a populist touch. Macron is not going to fool anyone if he shows up at the G7 wearing ripped sweatpants and a who-farted t-shirt. But let's just recognize that the ideal mouthpiece for modern left-wing economics is still Bill fucking Clinton, a.k.a. a big, sloppy hillbilly with flaws large enough to be seen from space, who, oh, by the way, also happens to be a Rhodes Scholar. Observation number three. Marine Le Pen succeeded in moving towards the center. A lot of the commentary that's happening right now in between the first and the second round is hand-wringing over the fact that a far-right xenophobe with illiberal tendencies, who sees herself as a fellow traveler with Viktor Orban in Hungary, I'm describing Marine Le Pen, she advanced to the second round and has a shot at winning. She probably won't, but it's not a done deal. That hand-wringing in my opinion, is warranted. Le Pen, uh, I think she is very bad. But it is notable that the prelude to her relative success has been an aggressive tack towards the center. Marine Le Pen has spent years, years trying to soften her image. Her party, which was founded by her dad and was long the refuge of thinly veiled and not so thinly veiled anti-Semites, They recently changed their name. They used to be called the National Front. They are now called Meta. No, that's not true. They're called the National Rally. So what they're trying to say is National Front, jackbooted thugs marching through the streets, National Rally, eh, lots of bunting and balloons and such. Le Pen has centered her campaign around what you might call pocketbook issues, inflation. They're talking about inflation a lot in France. There's a lesson for the U.S., Inflation, jobs, factories closing, that type of thing. So she is sometimes sort of to the left of Macron. And then, talk about softening her image, Marine Le Pen has turned her Instagram into a clearinghouse for adorable cat photos. And I gotta say, I went to the Instagram, these are some adorable cats. And (laughs) Marine Le Pen... If I didn't know who she was, she would just look like a, she would look like a quite pleasant cat lady. There's just photo after photo of her snuggling up with these cute little kitties. And I have to say, this is the most amoeba-brained manipulation technique I think I've ever witnessed in politics. And I think I also have to say, oh, look at those fuzzy little guys. Yes. Who thinks France is being overrun by immigrants? You do. Look, if you listen to this podcast, you know I am pro-cat. I have one of these ridiculous little things in my apartment. They are fluffy little balls of nonsense, and I think they are great. I know that comedy writers will eventually be replaced by cats. 
Cats on social media are funnier than comedians on social media. That's what's going to happen. I accept the verdict. I find it fair. And it is crass for Marine Le Pen to use adorable cats to mask her ugly policies. But it is also, let's face it, definitely going to work. Now, if there is anything that helped Le Pen moderate her image more than adorable cats, it is the hideous candidacy of Eric Zamor. Zamor is basically French Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson. He is an ultra-right. I mean, really, he's way out there. Way, way, way to the right. Ultra-right TV commentator who frequently gets in trouble for walking the line between veiled racism and just meat and potatoes racism. Two months ago, Eric Zamor's candidacy was surging. And this made Marine Le Pen look kind of moderate. This was like when an actress does a scene with a horse. Inevitably, she ended up looking good by comparison. But then, Eric Zamor ran into a small problem, and that small problem was the war that has dominated world news for the past six weeks. When I said a second ago that Zamor was basically Tucker Carlson, I meant it. <laughs> Zamor has repeatedly said nice things about Vladimir Putin. In 2018, he said he would, quote, dream of a French Vladimir Putin who would restore, quote, an empire in decline. And oh, by the way, what a fantastic job Putin is currently doing to restore Russian greatness. No decline there. Russia's stock, their prestige is going up, 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 up. I can see why Zamor would want to import that to France. Anyway, Zamor initially opposed letting Ukrainian refugees into France. That allowed Marine Le Pen to look like Oscar fucking Schindler just for not arguing that people fleeing well-documented scenes of horror should be sent back into the fray. My interpretation is that Le Pen's much-talked-about surge of the month before the election, and it was talked about a lot, is actually the war in Ukraine kneecapping Zamor's campaign and then Le Pen attracting his castaways. Marine Le Pen is still very far to the right, but her claim to being the center-right candidate, it is stronger than it has ever been. The actual center-right candidate, Valerie Procrest, who I described earlier as the French Jeb Bush, which is, oh, that is, that is a rough insult. Oh, I don't normally say such vile things about people, but Valerie Procrest the actual center-right candidate, never got traction. Every article that I have read about her basically uses several hundred words to say, she's boring. The point is, Marine Le Pen did well enough to get into the second round. I'm personally not convinced that she has a ton of real momentum behind her. I think maybe her competitors are collapsing and she's basically picking up the pieces. Observation number four, being friendly with Vladimir Putin, uh, that's a bad look. So this is kind of weird. Four out of the five competitive candidates were kind of squishy on Russia. All four of them had something about them that made them kind of have to backpedal. Eric Zamor, as mentioned, badly wanted Vladimir Putin to be his friend. Le Pen was Putin's friend. She paid a chummy visit to the dictator back in 2017. Melanchon, the far-leftist guy, he has the history of Russiaphilia that basically comes with the gig when you're a career leftist, and Valerie Pekres, the candidate you already forgot about because she's so boring, she had a key ally join a Russian petrochemical company. 
right around the time of the election. On the simplest moral question in recent memory, (laughs) only Emmanuel Macron has been able to consistently and unequivocally signal that he thinks unprovoked attacks on sovereign nations are bad. And it's hard to tease out specifically what effect that had on the outcome, but it was a major campaign issue. It absolutely dragged down Eric Zamor. And to bring that back to America, which is the whole point of this podcast, (laughs) is that there are not a ton of American politicians who have zipped their balls into their fly on the Russia-Ukraine question, but there are a couple, and one of them is Donald J. Is it Trump or Trump? Trump. 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 Donald J. Trump is one of the ones who has fucked this up, and I do think that is a big problem for him. I think, looking back at everything, the populist surge of 2016, that narrative was probably overstated. It was basically two data points. It was kind of like noticing that Charlotte's Web and Animal Farm were written within a couple years of each other, and then declaring it to be the decade of the pig. So we were too quick to extrapolate a trend there, I think. Similarly, we should not look at Trump's defeat in 2020 and now Putin's self-imposed quagmire and conclude that right-wing ethno-nationalism's day is over. I very much want to do that, but I should not do that. What I'm taking from this is that sea changes in politics are rare. They don't happen often. If you work in politics you really never get to spike the ball. Instead, you stumble forward, building ever-tenuous coalitions and eking out incremental change so meager that, honestly, a flyer at a public library commemorating your achievement would probably be overkill. My takeaway from the first round of French voting is that no ideology or movement has triumphed over the other, and likewise, none of them have been vanquished. It's not going to be a decisive victory, but for... Either Macron or Le Pen, probably Macron. It's just going to be an ordinary garden variety victory because he has done the hard work of politics. He has been slightly better at putting together a winning coalition than his competitors. And that's the episode. Somewhat of a Seinfeldian episode today and that the point is kind of that there is no point. It's a podcast about nothing. But hey, I try to call them as I see them, and I'm not going to go, whoa, big news, when I don't think there's big news. I'm just going to say, one person was going to win, and it looks like it's this guy. That's it for this week. I just want to remind you again that all of my stuff can be found at imightbewrong.substack.com. There are many articles that are not this one. There are many articles that don't make the podcast because I can only blabber for so long. Please check it out. Please subscribe. I'd appreciate that. And I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and bye for now.